You're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest today is Rashika Fernandepuli, MD, a co-founder and the chief executive officer of Iora Health, a unique model innovating in the primary care space. Dr. Fernanda Pulley is a physician who has spent decades improving the quality of health care delivered to patients. He was the first executive director of the Harvard Interfaculty Program for Health Systems Improvement and served as a managing director of the advisory board company. He serves on the faculty and earned his AB, MD, and MPP degrees from Harvard University and completed his clinical training at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Iora Health's website notes, We're changing healthcare from the ground up, believing better healthcare starts with better primary care. Iora Health's simple yet radically different approach to restoring humanity to healthcare is threefold team based care that puts the patient first, a payment system based on care, and technology built around people, not process. So, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Fernanda Pule and what he's up to at Iora Health. Thank you so much, Greg and Rashika. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. It is great to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's always great to talk to you, and hopefully I'll run into you at one of these conferences coming up soon because it's, it's always a fantastic opportunity. So why don't you give our audience a little feel for your background and history and then maybe where Iora Health is today? Sure. So, uh, so I'm a primary care doc. Uh, and about uh, 15 or 16 years ago, uh, was in the typical primary care practice and it had this realization that it doesn't take rock, you know, doesn't take genius, that the model we have of delivering primary care was not working, right? I think a lot of good people, a lot of good intentions, but the model fundamentally wasn't working, wasn't working for docs, wasn't working for patients, wasn't working for the system. Everyone feels like they're on a hamster wheel and things are going faster and faster. You feel like you really can't do your job and help patients. And, and then this, the key is that things are getting worse and not better. All of the above was, was getting worse. Uh, the electronic medical records, a lot of the quality metrics, all the things that they, people were putting in place to theoretically improve things weren't helping. And, and I think this, the real realization that I came to is maybe the, the model we have is rotten to the core. And, and really what it was that we built the system on a basis of uh, transactions, document code, bill, next, play these games about whether it's a 99213 or 99214, uh, and, and really none of that actually adds value, right? It's not why I went in to see medicine. It's not why patients were coming to see us. That really the thing that heals people is relationships. And what we had to do is sort of maybe get rid of all these transactions and rebuild on relationships, not add stuff to the current system, but maybe take stuff away. One of my favorite quotes is from Michelangelo. They asked him one day, you know, how do you get the Pieta, this beautiful sculpture, and he said, it's really simple. I take a block of stone and I chip away everything that's not the pieta, right? So maybe that's what we had to do to primary care. So I started on a journey about 16 years ago of what if we started over and built a new model of primary care that was sort of radically consumer-centric, value-based, uh, with digital and met the needs of patients and doctors. And what if we weren't, we had the courage to start over from scratch? You know, I had in the past trying to fix 
healthcare, you know, through working at places like the advisory board company, which is a think tank in DC, through running an interfaculty health policy program at Harvard, through working with people like Don Berwick at IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and I really realized all of those were what I call the incremental change model. It's take existing practices and tweak them a little bit, move them ever so slowly toward the future. And I, I finally ran out of um, ran out of patience that maybe we should start over. And that was the beginnings of what turned into Iora, of really coming up with this brand new model of care. Iora is this model that you say you essentially start over with. So what did you you mentioned this idea about patient centric? What did you feel were the key components in that, and how is that operating now as compared to some of the other models that are out there? Yeah, no. So if you want to fix healthcare, like the, the goal, unfortunately, of the current healthcare system is to do more stuff to people. Right? People come to you, there's a need, you fill the need, and you get paid for telling them what to do. That's minorly interesting. What's really interesting is how do you help people actually do it? So in my old practice, you know, people would come to me and I'd have, you know, seven or ten minutes to see them. And I would be able to say, look, uh, you should eat less, you should exercise more, you should take your medicines. Uh, good luck, sucker. I'll see you in three months. And then three months later, you'd come back and you, of course, haven't done everything. And you bad, bad, non-compliant patient, right? And that sort of cycle would continue. So really, I didn't know, we need to change the system where we need to, A, create a plan called a shared care plan with patients. We need to have human beings who are not just doctors, not even nurses, what we call health coaches, who are from the community, speak the language of the people they serve, can actually help patients figure out how to execute on the plan, you know, understand your condition, know what to track, uh, take you for walks, uh, teach you to exercise, teach you to eat, uh, hold your hand when that's the right thing to do, kick you in the hand when that's the right thing to do. We had to integrate behavioral health into the practices and put, you know, mid-level behavioralists in the practice. We had to, to tackle social determinants. We were doing that for 10 years. We had to have patients know what's going on if they're going to try and improve their health. So let them see their whole medical record. We've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, get data from patients from their home, not just when we get in, in the office. Get patients together in groups so they can help each other learn. Create a de facto narrow network beyond us so we can help people navigate the system and find the right specialists and co-manage in the right way. Be with them when they're in the hospital as opposed to just uh, dropping them like most people. So it's a very different system. We also then realized that what you needed to do was build a different IT platform, right? The electronic health records out there, uh, despite all the rhetoric, are built to document code and build higher, not to manage populations. Sure, they have registries. They're usually afterthoughts. They often don't work. So we've had to build our own system that's really more of a relational system, like a CRM than an EMR, right? That's a transactional system. Uh, we had to build a different culture, a different space design. And the big, the big kahuna, really, and the thing that I think keeps almost everyone from doing it is a business model, right? It's not hard to come up with I just, what I just said, right? How do you optimally manage people? The hard part, and why is no one else doing it or very few people doing it? Because the current business model of fee-for-service doesn't pay for it, and trying to get out of that and figure out how to get a business model that does work has been the, the real challenge over the last 15 years. And in some ways, the evolution of Iora has really been, you know, the similar clinical model. Of course, we make it better periodically, but really it's been an evolution of the business model of how to do this. So, as you said, all of those areas you discussed, are they're almost, I, I don't want to use the phrase, they're buzzwords, you know, uh, but engagement, uh, group meetings, all of these, and you obviously have put them together. So, and you talked some a little bit about engagement, so let's dive into that a little bit, where you talked about having coaches from the community, which obviously is critically important. We've seen that in other programs as well, where people have explored that. What sort of things did you do to create that engagement 
so that that individual doesn't come back at that three-month point not having done it, which is sort of the holy grail in a sense of a lot of this. You know, I think it's exactly it. I mean, the, the, the big bet we're making is that the thing we start with is relationship, right? So that, that this is all about behavior change, both by patients and by doctors. And if you don't cause behavior change, you're wasting your time. Right. By the way, there's a lot of waste of time going on in healthcare, and so but but the, the people change behavior because of relationships and people who care about them. So a, a great story, one of my favorites, is we had a practice, and we had a patient. I was the doc, and uh, when the health coach said, "Doc, there's a patient who's coming to see us. Uh, she's a hot mess." And I go in the room. Her name was Joyce, and and she looked awful. Like her hair was disheveled, had this blank look in her eyes. She was um, had been in and out of the ER, not going to work. She was you know, not taking her meds very often. She had uh, blood pressure, diabetes, out of control. So met with her, gave her a health coach, started coming to some of our groups, sort of got with the program. I ended up leaving the practice to try and figure out how we start a second one. And then uh, I came back about six months later, and uh, the doctor took over for me, Dr. Dr. Neil Patel, said, Rashika, remember that patient who came in the beginning, Joyce? Uh, I said, oh, yeah, the hot mess. I was like, right. He said, right, uh, she's back. I want you to see her. So I go into the room and I almost don't recognize her. She looks amazing. Her hair is combed, her makeup, little makeup on. I look at the chart, back to work, taking her meds, uh, diabetes, hypertension under control. So I was like, Joyce, you look amazing. She's a doc, I've never felt better in my life. So they asked her a key question. I said, Joyce, what have we done to help you? And, you know, she didn't say the things that everyone in healthcare focuses on. You You have the right payment model, you have the right IT system, you have the right protocols. She said something very profound. She said, you all cared about me. You taught me to care about myself, and I didn't want to let any of us down, right? You cared about me. You taught me to care about myself. I didn't want to let any of us down. Like, that's the sharp end of the sword. That's what causes behavior change. Now, in order to do that, we need to have the right payment model, the right IT system, the right people who are picked for empathy, the right process, the right space. You know, all of those are aligned around doing that, but, but that's the sharp end of the sword. Interesting. I would add one more thing, Rashika, and I think you sort of underplayed that a little bit from in terms of, you know, myself looking at behavior change over the years and how we try to do it at the various companies that you can put in all of the approaches, but it sounds like you have the culture within your organization that's that. And so yes. I would assume your turnover is not very high. Is that true or not? You know, it's absolutely true. And, and so, so it is all about culture. I could not agree with you more. That I think everyone talks about process and IT and the payment. And yes, you need to get that right. If you get that right, but the culture is wrong, it doesn't work. Uh, you can actually, with the right culture, even make it work despite some of the other things not working. But yeah, no, we spend a lot of time explicitly building the culture that's aligned around this. By the way, this is what, what the vast majority of people in healthcare are doing is they're staying in their fee-for-service you know, most of the business still fee-for-service. They're taking some sub-segment of patients that they're trying to take some sort of risk or population-based payment on, and then they're trying to do the two things in the same place. And I think that's just a fool's errand, that, uh, that this is not a little different, completely different. The culture it takes to optimize throughput and the culture it takes to optimize actually results in population health are not a little different. They're completely different. Uh, what we've been able to do at Iora is simply say, we're going to be in the new world. We don't care about the old world. And we're going to align everything around it, um, as opposed to what's happening in the vast majority of practices where things are unaligned uh, and you get into all sorts of trouble. So as you align practices, 
Let's dive a little bit into this mental health. I know you mentioned on the website you focus on mental health and integrating that. How have you done that, and what sorts of areas do you focus on in mental health? Is it really deep clinically, or is it uh, a little more counseling and things like that? Where are you with that? Yeah, I mean, so we're not a mental health intervention per se. We, we are a primary care practice. And I think what we learned early on is that, particularly if you look at the sickest group of people we talk to, the people with multiple chronic illnesses, virtually all of them have coexist or mental health conditions. So we can get into this question of, are they so sick because they're depressed? Are they de- depressed because they're so sick? It sort of doesn't matter which way the causality goes. They're correlated, and you have to address both of them. If you don't address the depression, the anxiety, the executive function, dysfunction, you know, all of those things, you're never going to address the physical health characteristics. Uh, and then good luck trying to, quote, send someone to psychiatry, right? They, you can't find them. They don't take insurance. Uh, in a misguided way, they won't even communicate with you because they think it's a HIPAA violation, you know, all sorts of problems. There's a stigma that people won't go. So what we decide to do is we have to take care of this stuff, and we have sort of bundled it in with our services. Uh, and, and by the way, a lot of people talk about mental health integration, but it's just sort of parallel play. They happen to share the same hallway. No, you have to deeply integrate everything, the work off the same medical record, huddle together and talk about patients, uh, do warm handoffs, et cetera, right? So, so we integrate mental health in sort of three levels, and it's based uh, on some work that the VA has been doing over the last many years. So at the basic level, all of our health coaches are trained in some basic mental health things, identifying, screening, uh, some basic interventions, uh, a lot of it in, inspired by the impact model from the University of Washington. Then every practice also has a mid-level behavioralist, typically a PhD psychologist, who's uh, at, in the practice who can do really three things. One is you know, supervise and train the health coaches. Two is actually see people, a warm handoff. So I'm a doc, I'm seeing someone, um, you know, they've got uh, some diabetes, but they also sound depressed. I walk them across the hall. Hi, I want you to meet Judy. Judy works with us. Uh, and there's no stigma involved, there's no extra copay, et cetera, and then we can do that warm handoff. And she can talk about depression. And then we could co-manage it together. She said, I think this, this patient could benefit from a bit of a med. I'll start it, but Judy, you can monitor it. Tell me if I need to go up in the dose. Um, and the third thing Judy can do is, from working and seeing patients is also uh, giving people access to the broader mental health community so that, to the extent it becomes worse or they happen to have a thought disorder or something that we don't have any business managing, she can help uh, you know, um, interface with the broader mental health network. Uh, so really it's a three-level deep integration, and we do it because people need it, and we think it helps improve outcomes. I assume you've built in the assessment tools into your initial assessments around depression screenings or stress and anxiety screenings and things like that. Maybe a fair amount of your business to understand it's Medicare Advantage, so you're working off an annual wellness visit type approach? No, absolutely. So we have a bunch of things that we should be screening for, including uh, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. You know, we screen for some childhood traumas. All of those are actually really important to understand if you want to actually take optimal care of the patients. And by the way, a lot of doctors don't ask. They don't know what to do with it. And they don't have the time or the people or the whatever. So so, so if you don't want to know, don't ask. You know, we do want to know. Uh-huh. And does this same approach apply across your book of business? Are you doing commercial and Medicare, any other space, any direct-to-consumer stuff or things like that? We are. So, so our, I, I made a mention that, that really IOR has been an evolution of the business model. Fifteen years ago, uh, even before it was called IOR, it was called Renaissance Health, we started in the direct primary care space. We were one of the very first uh, direct primary care practices in the country. Garrison Bliss, who I'm sure you know, in Seattle, and Tom Lee, 
uh, and a variant of the model at One Medical, and there was a guy named Chuck Kylo, and a thing called Greenfield Health in Portland, and a guy named Alan Dappin in Washington, and you know ourselves in Boston. We sort of all came up almost independently. We were all docs who got fed up with the current system, realized fee-for-service was one of the problems. No payer would give us the time of day. So we went to patients that, look, if you paid us 40, 50 bucks a month, and we get out of this stupid payer thing, we would be able to create a new model of care. So we started in that realm. Uh, we realized then that the, what we're doing is not just improving outcomes and uh, improving satisfaction, but it actually lowers downstream spend by doing better primary care, keep people out of the hospital, out of the ER, out of procedures they don't need. So then we sort of morphed that uh, about 10 years ago into working with self-insured employers. So we started working with the Boeing company, the casino workers in Atlantic City, the SEIU, and we did that for many years. And then we morphed that into saying this actually works really well for Medicare Advantage patients. So we do all three of the above right now. Um, the most of our growth recently has been the Medicare Advantage space because it's such a no-brainer in Medicare. We still work with a number of self-insured employers. So what we need to do is work with employers who've got long-term workforces. You know, we're investing in people. So people like the Boeing Company, the Teachers Union in, uh, in Washington, the state employees in Massachusetts, Carpenter, you know, th- those sorts of people. Uh, and then we do have a little bit of the retail direct primary care left. As you morphed this model, you mentioned earlier in, in, when we were talking about differing payment models and approaches. Are most of these set up as at-risk models, obviously between Medicare Advantage and the other uh, commercial business you're in? Yes, what we don't do is fee-for-service. We think that's toxic to primary care, so we simply don't do it. We start with sort of primary care cap, where it gives us a fixed amount to take care of patients and let us get on with it. And by the way, let's have it be roughly double what typical primary care gets. Primary care is typically 5% of healthcare spend. That means 95% of what we spend in this country typically is failure of primary care. That seems like a stupid investment philosophy. So at least double down on the primary care. And increasingly, you know, like I said, if you do primary care, right, you can lower downstream utilization. We are moving to Toward what's called global risk, where just give us pretty much as much of the healthcare dollars we can get, and we will be responsible for you know the cost for hospitalizations and ER visits and specialist visits and procedures. So now, when we lower those by doing better primary care, we can benefit from it, and can we basically shift that money back into primary care? And as you consider that move to a global capitation. What do you see or believe to be, I mean, I've heard different numbers out there, the typical spend associated in a globally capitated model, say, in Medicare on a, on a you know, percent of premium basis? Yeah, I mean, so we, I mean, so, so it's a huge amount of money on the Medicare side, right? So the average premium or the average spend for a Medicare beneficiary is probably about $800 per person per month or about 10000 per year. You know, we tend to go after sicker, older uh, and lower income communities, because that's who we think need us. So our patients are probably 1.2 times that, so you know, in the $1,000 per person per month premium. Now, the health plans, when we work with them, you know, they keep a chunk off the top. Sure. Uh, you know, typically they're allowed to keep about 15% by the MLR rules, and that's sort of about what they keep in general. So there's, so we're getting, you know, roughly 85% of premium. You know, that varies a little bit depending on who we work with and where we are. But, but the rest, of, but then that money becomes ours. You know, I don't want to obviously get into your specific numbers there, but I've heard, you know, bandied around, you know, and we all talk about it, 25% or maybe more of healthcare, waste, fraud, and abuse, different issues. Obviously, some of it's administrative costs, but there's a fair amount of clinical savings. And, and I, I appreciate the fact that you've gone and 
upstream to the give me the higher risk people because there's actually more room to make improvements there. So yep. it may seem the, the wrong approach. Is it fair to say, and I'm also thinking about this from an employer perspective, that we could take those premiums down 20 percent, 15, 20 percent fairly easily with a very sophisticated model like you have? Yeah, so we are running MLR, medical loss ratios, on the Medicare side. That's in the sort of 70 percent range. Right. If you think that 85 is sort of the where it starts, so that's a 15 percentage points of drop right. in spend. And, and there are some places we're now running mid 60s. And then if you said of that 15 percentage points that the health plans take, there's a huge amount of waste in there too. We could easily take five of that out. I think mm-hmm. that's why where we get to these sort of 20 percent numbers. We and we have and we've done this with working with employers, particularly if you if you select out the sicker folk. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, we're seeing numbers like sort of 18. The number is at 18, 20% uh, drop in total healthcare spend, right? Again, this is not, it, it, it upsets me when people like, oh, the goal should be lower, you know, bending the cost curve, you know, changing the 5% a year to 4%. No, 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 no. We, we need to drop right. it to 20. Uh, and, and by the way, put that, that money back in people's pockets, right? The healthcare system has been confiscating a huge amount of our wealth uh, over time. And I think uh, when we, and, and it's by the way, not just us, other people like us who take this seriously, and decided we're going to build systems uh, wholly around this, we see numbers that are similar, right? 15, right. 20% drop in total spending, you know, and it's driven largely by big drops in hospitalizations, 40, 50% mm-hmm. drop in hospitalizations, 40, 50% drop in ER visits, similar drops in sort of specialist costs and uh, specialty visits. Uh, you know, um, again, there are things we can't fix. Uh, some of the pricing issues are a problem. Uh, largely due to sort of monopoly pricing and some shenanigans. Obviously, drug pricing is a big issue, which we can try to help, but it's, it's difficult. But in general, there's a lot of a lot of waste in the system. So as you look at the healthcare system, and I've you know these, the health insurers have become pay providers. United Optum is the largest insurer of doctors. You watch Humana with Conviva, uh, Florida Blue becoming Guidewell and splitting out now becoming providers. And you're you're delegated beneath some some of those, except in the cases where their employer groups going, you know, who are fully insured and going at risk with you. Do you see? Obviously, you and others have proven this model. Do you see the move potentially to just take out that insurance layer, and that's how you get to the twenty plus percent? So that just the, just direct contracting with you. I mean, CMS is even pushing that out now through their primary care model. Is that the future? Yeah, I mean, so Mark Bertolini, you know, who is a former CEO of Aetna, has, has said publicly, if we were starting over, uh, it's not clear we would have health plans if there were actually organized physician groups. So health plans exist because physicians have been unorganized and doesn't and don't have the capability. And our whole proposition is that a lot of the, quote, managing care that health plans have claimed to do with their sort of nurse in a call center in Idaho calling you at dinner time to try and look at claims data, you know, is wholly ineffective. Uh, there's no evidence that any of those programs work. You know, all of the CMS demos that have showed sort of care management have been from physician groups who have real clinical data and real relationships with the patients and can actually change care without sending mother may I faxes. So, so, so I actually think, and, and you see, this is why I think health plans are moving in this direction of aggressively buying, you know, et cetera, partnering with provider groups because, you know, I think the value that's going to be created, that sort of ratcheting down of this, this unnecessary utilization and, you know, the, the relationship with the customer, the consumer, are both better done by, you know, well-organized and providers than they are 
you know, health plans. Now, the question, of course, is not every provider can do this, right? It requires some expertise. It requires capital. It requires, you know, having IT systems and data capabilities. And, you know, and I think the sort of solo doc, you know, the two doctor practice with the wife as a billing clerk, the daughter and the front desk staff, you know, doesn't have a prayer to compete at this level. Uh, but I think well-organized provider groups actually are probably the best platform for this. Is there a way you could integrate those types of providers into your system if they could achieve the appropriate behavior in terms of their management of the, pract- of the patients? Or is it just great, too far of a stretch for us uh, independent practitioners? No, I think it's a great question. And we're, we're starting to play with what we call IORA inside, which is, you know, right now, you know, really what we said we had to do was we had to build a vision of where we want to go, right, of where the future is. And the way to do that was to take away all the constraints and just build it. We did, and I think it's a thing of beauty, and we've got 49 practices across the country now, 12 different markets, and works. The next step is how do you get from here to there, right? And I think we are getting approached by a lot of largely independent primary care groups, occasionally multi-specialty groups, occasionally some health systems, by the way, that are pretty progressive, to say how how might we partner to do this. And I think the the game changer is increasingly, again, remember, so the, the payment model has been the tricky part. When we started in this, it was very hard to convince payers to do this. Now, uh, there are more and more progressive payers. You know, virtually every national health plan, you know, many of the blues plans, many uh, progressive self-assured employers are now eager, if, if you can show you can do this, to sort of give you these sorts of contracts because they work better than the old ones. And then the big game changer you mentioned in passing was CMS that they are moving toward this direct contracting model where if you're a physician group, you can take sort of essentially full risk on patients who are in sort of traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Uh, And that's a huge game changer, right, in terms of changing economics. And so I think that opens up an opportunity for for us as a how might we collaborate with existing groups that have lives already but may not have this clinical model, and how do we put those two things together? So I think we have time for one final question here, Rashik, and I could probably go all day with you at this rate. What are you looking at as you look at your system? Where do you see areas that you'd like to get further improvement or or change or add? So I think there's a lot of them. I think one is really pushing more on on how to empower consumers to self service. You know, we in some ways what we've done is taken you know things that were very doctor centric and we've pushed it down into really sort of these health coaches and other team members. The next step in that evolution is how do we sort of push the give consumers tools where they can do a lot of this themselves, right? And never alone, but but with 80% of it, they can be done. Think about in, in every other part of the economy, whether it's buying airplane tickets or, you know, doing searches or investing. There are tools where, where individuals now can do things that previously required some media intermediary. And I think the more we can allow people to do it themselves with some great customized tools and, and a backstop if you need help, uh, I think that will lead to better outcomes. It's better for the consumer, and it's also going to be lower cost. Well, fantastic. It's it's a pleasure to talk to you, Rashika. It, it always is. You're doing some amazingly fantastic stuff. So thanks for joining us on Pop Health Week, and we'll have to get you back on. All right. Thank you very much, and all the best. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Back to you, Greg. And I thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Rashika Fernandapoli, MD, co-founder and chief executive officer of Iora Health for his generous time and many insights. For more information or to follow Dr. Fernandapoli and Team Iora Health's work, go to www.iorahealth.com. 
or on Twitter, follow them via at Rushika, R-U-S-H-I-K-A, the number one, and Iora Health. That's I-O-R-A-H-E-A-L-T-H. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying, bye now. <laughs>